So yesterday, first we set the tone for our retreat about really drinking deep in the waters of rest that He leads us and guides us. And today, if last night's message was encouraging and uplifting, fun, that I almost got eaten up by a lion and yeah. Today's message, I, I kind of need to warn you that I'm planning on taking us a little bit deep down the road. Yet I think it's a much needed message for the time that we live in today. Just about a couple of years ago, I went to my regular physical, uh, get checked up to see how everything's doing with my body and all. And my doctor and I, who's been practicing, he's been practicing over four decades. Um, and he's asking a bunch of questions. Are you eating well? Are you sleeping well? Are you doing this? Um, all the normal things that you would expect what doctors would say in your annual physical. But as we are, you know, talking about going about our annual physical, all of a sudden he asks me a question that really threw me off because I did not expect that. All of a sudden he looks at me and then he asked, do you have a gun in your home? And I was like, that's... First of all, that escalated quickly. <laughs> Second of all, that's a personal question. So I asked him, hey, Dr. Frankel, I'm like, oh, why do you ask me that? He's like, well, Jen, I, I am really sorry that I have to do this, but nowadays I ask this question to actually everybody. It was in the middle of the pandemic. Everyone was so depressed or angry that it was as a right duty to do as a physician to ask the importance of mental health because he was worried whether any of his patients will either harm themselves or harm others. And that became such a, the most sobering physical I've ever done, uh, because I'm like, oh wow. And I walked away thinking about the whole conversation I had with Dr. Frankel that made me realize that physical health, once again, and spiritual health, mental health, are all quite related to one another. So today I want to take us to that importance of of realizing a kind of darkness in our lives, that scripture has a term for that. And I honestly think where you are sitting today, you are terribly equipped to deal with this. What I mean by that, let me just give you, when the suffering hits in our lives, the, every other worldview has kind of, how should I put it, um, has a, they worked it out, whether I agree or not. They have some way they work out the suffering, darkness, and difficulties in our lives. But I honestly don't think modern Western culture has a no term whatsoever to deal with the darkness and suffering. What I mean by that, let's take the worldview of Hinduism, for example. Hinduism, let's say suffering and darkness, just really deep disparage in your life. How do you make sense of that? Not that I subscribe to Hinduism. If I subscribe to that, I won't be standing here today. They say, you know what, life's hard, but karma. I'll work, I really do my best, live hard. Maybe next life, I'll be okay. And maybe some of you, maybe second gen or maybe first gen came from Asia. A lot of Asian culture subscribe to Buddhism. How do they make sense of suffering and hardship life? Uh, we think, you know, it's, this world is illusion. You know, we need escape from them, come to the escapism in a sense. Not that I buy that, but that's one way to make sense of suffering and darkness that comes upon your life. Uh, Greek stoicism back in ancient days, they say, feelings are bad, suck it up, pull yourself up by bootstraps. I actually think that influenced a lot in church culture as well. But at least they have, I don't believe it either, but at least 
they have a way to work it out, right? But the modern Western culture is a, what people call a secular culture, a secularism. The word came from, it literally means nowism. Now is all there is. I'm sorry to do this, this is so 2010, but YOLO, if you only live once, live it up. So as a result, suffering is something that you must avoid at all costs. There's no meaning behind that when the suffering and darkness and challenges come, we get buckled. But if you're honest with yourself, some deep darkness, perhaps some of you are walking through that today. Um, some of you have been dealing with the suffering, pain, the deep despair that you cannot even articulate. It's a reality. So I want to kind of take us to talk about that. How we are going to approach and I actually think one more thing, it's even worse in our context because many of us have such an honor and shame culture too. We sometimes don't even know how to say that. We are struggling with all that. So I, I just think it's very important for us to talk about it. So how we are going to go about is this. Oh, actually, I didn't get to bring, but give me one second. If you look at your brochure today, I'll walk through the darkness selected from the book of Proverbs, but it's from the various texts. So if you look at the... Page number seven, I kind of have all the scripture references that I allude to, and as well as Psalm 88. So what we are going to do first, we'll take this Proverbs, various, various verses in the book of Proverbs to talk about what scripture talks about, the darkness, despair, anxiousness, anxiety disorder, however you want to call that. And then after we walk through these Proverbs, we will go through the book of Psalm. We'll do a case study out of the entire Psalter. There are a couple very unique songs that is unlike any other songs. We'll go there for our case study, how to deal with the darkness. And lastly, we'll end our time by really remembering why Jesus Christ really is our hope in life and death. That includes in your utmost darkness that you cannot articulate. So first, we'll talk about uh, this darkness, whether you want to call it despair, depression, anxiousness, you name it. We'll first talk about its scale, its pervasiveness, its cause, and its effect of this crushed spirit, the spirit talks about. The first we'll talk about scale, pervasiveness, cause, and effect of this crushed spirit, and we'll do case study, and we'll do that. So let's look at one of these, let me read this selected verse from Proverbs 12.5. 13, 12, 14, 10, 14, 13, 15, 13, 17, 20, 22, 18, 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can share its joy. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, a rejoicing may end in grief. A happy heart makes the face cheerful, but heartache crushes the spirit. A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. 1814, the human spirit can endure in sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear the word of the Lord. 
Let's go for first. Let's talk about its scale. Now, when you look at the first few verses, at least there, Proverbs used the word anxiety on 12.25. Anxiety weighs down the heart. And then 13.12, it talks about the deferred hope. Hope deferred makes heartache, the second heart, heartache. And 14.10 calls that as bitterness. In the last three verses that we talked about, like 15.13, 17.22, it's called as a crushed spirit. That's how scripture defines that. Now, I don't know, when I talk about its, its scale, I don't know how comfortable you are. Some of you guys might be comfortable to call it, I'm just a little bit anxious. I'm a, I'm a, bit, a little bit of, uh, I don't know, I'm not being the best. To all the way down the opposite end, you might be comfortable calling yourself, you know what, I'm clinically diagnosed depressed right now. Yet it's so easy to think in such binary term, either you are depressed or not, whether you're in despair or not, whether you're anxious or not. But counselor Ed Welch says that you should think of this as non-binary system. We all are in one spectrum or the other. We are all in the spectrum in one degree or the another. But this is not something that you should look down on others who may be really walking through some sad times and difficult times. Some of you guys might just say, I'm just a little anxious, or, hey, this retreat is awesome. I am actually doing great. You might not be on that. Uh, but when you think about it, just don't think of it as if a flipping switch on and off. It's scale is non-binary system. Uh, that one end, some of you guys are just comfortable calling it anxious, bothersome, while some others might say that I'm debilitated. There's no energy in my life because this has been really hard. So it's non-binary system in each scale. We all are in one way or the other, moving toward one or the other. Uh, second, we'll talk about, and then what scripture calls it as in like, crush the spirit. Wow, that sounds really intense, doesn't it? When scripture calls that in 15, like 14, like 15, 13, 17, 22, 18, 14, Spirit in Hebrew is the term ruach. The Hebrew word ruach denotes the idea of, how should I call it? Like zeal, passion, the energy within you. There's a tailwind of your life. But when your spirit, the energy, zeal is crushed, there's no tailwind of your life. Uh, energy and life and passion is completely sapped out of your life. All you feel is the headwind. All you feel is just bottomless pit of agony of emptiness. It's like a black hole that sucks you in completely. I don't know. This crushed spirit can happen. I'll talk about what causes that in a second. But to give a little bit of heads up, um, it's been a few difficult years where just coming out of global pandemic last year or so. Who knows? I don't know why here the case is rising again. But during pandemic, I asked my staff in our church, I asked our children's ministry director, I asked our middle school director, youth director, um, and the women's ministry director, hey, how is everyone doing in our church? Um, because we're, we're demographic that covers all generations, like you guys. Our children's minister responded during the dark season and said, children are doing great. They, they just find this little mask thing annoying, but they're doing fine, they're happy, they quickly adapt to it. And our middle school director says, our middle school is just a little confused. They're not used to it, this thing. They don't know what to do, what parents are telling me, is that everyone's different thing. And our high school directors are saying, actually our high school kids are actually lost. 
they don't know what to do with their lives. Everything has been just gone. And our women's ministry director says, actually, everyone's just so angry. They're about to either explode or implode. And as I'm listening, my staff talking, giving us a report of how each ministry is doing, I came to realize that children are happy, middle school are confused, high school are lost, adults are angry and depressed. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And that was really sad that our people are so confused and depressed and we are crushed. There's so many people at the verge of explosion. If your temperament is more aggression, then you will explode, you will lash out. Or some of you, if your temperament is more calm, and you might get completely depressed and just lose the energy of your life. Or some of you are today, you say, see, it's not really one thing that caused the other thing. I thought I'm finally over it. I thought there was finally light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, yeah, it's back to square one. I cannot do that anymore. I feel like I'm killed by Southern paper cuts. It's everywhere. All of us have been there in one degree or the another. And I hope you don't say this. Look at the verse 14, 13. What does it say? Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. That's depressing. But what the Proverbs realistically, soberly telling that this matter of being in one spectrum or the another is not the matter of when, I'm not the matter of if, but the matter of when. So I, I hope you don't just say, oh, I'm doing great, so I'm, this is not for me. But no, I hope you tuck it in your heart because I pray that this can be resources for you, especially when you're walking through a dark season or you know at least how to comfort those are walking through such a terrible time. Secondly, so let's thirdly talk about its pervasiveness, how pervasive that is. Because Proverbs tells you, even in the middle of laughter, your heart might end in grief. Even in the middle of a great retreat, you're like, yeah, let's play, let's have fun. You go back to your room and like, oh, I'm still suffering, my work is still terrible. How pervasive that is. Um, uh, Barna Group is a research firm that does a lot of research throughout the nation conducted by this connected generation. Barna's largest ever group research data shows that half of U.S. 18 to 35 year olds, the 49% to be precise, expressed anxiety over important decisions and were afraid to fail. Relate to that. Over three in 10 said they often felt sad or depressed. 39%, or lonely and isolated from others, 34%. And what's sobering about this statistic is that it was done pre-pandemic. Now, let me go into pandemic decision. Depression among adults in the United States tripled in the early 2020 month of the global coronavirus, jumping from 8.5 before pandemic to staggering 278 and uh, let me take one year after 2021. A new research from Boston University School of Public Health reveals that the elevated rate of depression has persisted into 21 and even worsened, climbing to 32.8%, affecting every one in every three American adults. It's here. And this does not evade church community either. There are many of us um, today you may be doing great, but tomorrow your joy may end in grief. I just want you to be aware how pervasive that is because 
sometimes church is most cruel environment. You come in, you, you're kind of forced to come in with a great smile. God is good, so I'm good. Yeah, God is good, but that does not mean you have to be good 24-7. Sometimes it really is okay to be not okay. Um, there was, when I was in Africa, there was one song that said, our God is good, God, our God never fails, our God never fails, so I never fail. I was singing that, I was like, that's not true. <laughs> uh, your God never fails, but that does not mean you are completely free from sin. There are times that you fail, not that depression is a sin in itself. I'll elaborate on what that means in a second. And another interesting statistic says that compared to first-generation American Asian, second generations are much more prone to fall into that. Um, the research that I just read did not give us the exact reason why. Whereas first generation is so, so busy, I was like, I gotta make it for my next generation, uh, that they just didn't even have time to think how down they are, or they just ignore that because they just didn't get by. The second generation press came to much more aware. And I am not excluding myself from this study. I'm, I'm not saying, oh yeah, you poor thing. Yeah, I love Jesus, so I always hope within me. I don't know darkness, I'm doing great. No, actually, if there's any more, I am more prone than you guys, what I mean by that. As a study conducted in late 2020, roughly three in five pastors say that they have struggled with depression during their tenure of ministry. The number has grown significantly, 13 percentage points since this same question was asked in last study in 2016. Man, can you imagine half of your pastor more that are quite depressed? Life is quite hard. They are expressing this crushed spirit within them. So I hope that we at least shake off some shame. That we are free to at least say, I am not doing okay. I'm, don't feel sad about it. There are times that sometimes God brings us to a season. We'll examine that in Psalm 88 in a moment. But having said that now, let's move on talking about its cause. I'll be more kind of thorough overview of the biblical worldview on this cause. First, let me say very carefully, I mean, I say this very carefully with very gentleness to it, but I will say it, I think as your pastor, I'm obliged, my conscience tells you to say that first, it can be, yes, it can be caused by sin issue in your life. What I mean by that, um, for example, David and Bathsheba is a great example for that. Man after God's heart, he commits adultery with Bathsheba, David wants to cover that up, his sin. It's ongoing sin, adultery sin. He wants to cover it up. And so killing Uriah, David's wife, in order to cover up all its sin. Prophet Nathan comes to confront David's fallen, great depression. He weeps his bed day and night. His servants were even afraid to talk to him. Oh my goodness, he was weeping. Oh, actually, the first child is dead. What am I supposed to even tell him? Um, so it can be. I remember walking through a brother of mine in a church was dealing with repeated sins in his life. He just could not shake that off. And his guilt conscience caused such a havoc in his life. He just didn't know how to get out of that. So I say the very gentleness, and I'll come back to that. I think, having said that, sometimes Christian circle blows that up over population if everything's is an issue. So I want to come back to that. But having said that, it can be a sin issue. Second cause, it can be exactly opposite of sin issue. You can fall into great funk because actually you're wholeheartedly pursuing the Lord. What I mean by the great example of it is the book of Job. 
It's not Satan who's like, oh, I really want to tempt Satan. Actually, it was God who brought up Satan to Job. Hey, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one righteous. Satan comes and gives a billion suffering. Can you imagine what Job had to deal with because he was pursuing the Lord? Another example, Prophet Elijah. When you read the first king, like 18, 19, I think it's about there. I don't know why Hollywood has not made a movie out of Eliza. It's the blockbuster epic. Like Baal prophet said, hey, I can bring down the fire. And Eliza like, show me, show me what's God. And they're like, okay, I'm going to bring down the fire. But they do like crazy things. They limp around the altar. They cut themselves. Yeah, bring down the fire. Nothing happens. And Elijah shows you, he's like, let me show you what's God's son. And then he brings the, all the water to the altar. God, bring down fire. Kaboom, fire comes down. It's like crazy, amazing. And he's like, look, God, bring down rain. Rain, here's rain. Baal prophet couldn't do that. Incredible victory as a prophet of God. But guess what Elijah does after that? That's like the blockbuster victory of the victory. He falls into great depression, runs to the desert flame for his life. He just sleeps in desert day and night. So God sends his angel bird to give him food day and night. Sometimes because you're following the Lord so hard, sometimes this kind of harsh can come from. I want to especially highlight that because I say that because you're at the retreat setting. You will meet the Lord. You will have a great conversation with your friends. You are like mountaintop now. Really watch out next week. I mean, if you grew up in a church, you've been there after you three church, you're like, yes, I love Jesus. And then, oh, now what? The same thing can happen to you. After church retreat, great excitement, you go home, and then you're like, oh, God, I love you, but why do you feel this way? I feel terrible. Even among the pastors, we have this thing called Monday blues. After great Sunday, you go home, and you're like, what is this all about? You can deal with that. Thirdly, it can be sin issue. It can be exactly opposite of sin issue. Thirdly, it can come after major severe stress of life. Um, for example, I mean, sometimes you may be walking through an incredible demanding season, like residency. And if you're in a medical profession, you can no sleep. You're preparing bar exam. You just move. You just had transition of life. So many things moving. You just had kiddos. There are so many major severe stress. Postpartum is a real thing. It, it, it takes extraordinary circumstance, the emotional event. Could be caused by rejection when you talk about severe stress of life. When I talk about rejection, I mean all-encompassing rejection. Could be a romantic rejection, romantic rejection from romantic love, rejection from your job, rejection from the heart desire you had for your certain future. To the degree of emotional proximity, to the degree of emotional investment you made to your dream and desire, when the rejection comes, that much more you will suffer. You will feel that much more heartache. Man, I really, really, really wished for it. Now what? So it can be sin issue, it can be exactly opposite of sin issue, it can come from severe stress of life, circumstantial events. Fourth, it can come from physical suffering as well. Another example is Job, right? I mean, he was just tormented by God, by Satan was tempting him. When I talked about baby blues, postpartum, that's another physical stress. When you go through major cancer in your life, that will cause you very difficult times. And many preachers and presidents have dealt with that. And lastly, another, this can be cause and also effect. It goes both ways. 
And I think sometimes we struggle with hopelessness. That can be another big cause of your downsideness. When you really think about it, cornerstone, you don't really get down by the hardship of life in itself. But when you think that there's no hope for change in the future, when there's no hope for the better future tomorrow, if you think this is all there is, my life will not any get better, that will cause you to be in great despair. Because you got like no hope. Uh, Viktor Frankl is a Jewish psychotherapist who lived during the World War. And he was put in the concentration camp. And as a psychotherapist, he even observed these prisoners inmates about how they get by in this dark, dark circumstance of loss of hope in their lives. He writes in his book, Man's Meaning for a the Man's Search for a Meaning. Fascinating book, by the way. Writes that to his surprise, prisoners were actually doing great. But actually, it was after the day of liberation came that everyone fell in great depression. Because they were like, what's now I got nothing to look forward to. I got by in prison because of maybe one day day of liberation came. This is what Victor Frankl says. Whoever was still alive had reason for hope, health, family, happiness, professional abilities, fortune, position in society. All these were things that could be achieved again or restored. But after the day of liberation, we were not prepared for unhappiness. This disillusionment was an experience which these men have found very hard to get over. All of them got by their lives. If only day of liberation came. If only day of liberation came, I'll be great. Day of liberation came. They got out of concentration camp. Oh, but life's still hard. And they fell in great depression. That hopelessness sometimes which will cause you to be greatly, uh, cause you great despair. And when we look at this scale, it's, it's non-binary, it's pervasiveness everywhere, it's caused many issues that we just listed. I honestly am a little bit disheartened, is that the right word? Even ashamed to admit that actually I think the church are behind in the world when it comes down to this issue. Um, at least the world calls it mental health. Church, we call it, if you're sad, that's not because you're not really loving Jesus. You need to pray harder. You need to read more scripture. We have great shame attached to the darkness. Um, even I, it was about, I actually just saw this buddy of mine that I walked through my seminary season together. He flew off for my wedding. Um, but I was, I think about, I was back in 09. So how many, 14 years ago, a friend of mine was dealing with um, some ongoing sin issue that he didn't know how to shake it off. He really blew it. One day he came to my room sobbing and weeping. I mean, sobbing and weeping. I was like, hey man, what happened? And, and I, when I was in seminary, my job, actually I was RA in the singles building. So my job was to either comfort all those crying single men and women because of the rejection they faced. <laughs> or to all the people who were going through all the relationship issues and all that. But this guy, he just blew it, I blew it, blew it. And he was explaining what he went through, what he did, and I was like, oh my gosh. It was bad, I'm not gonna minimize his sin. It was, I can definitely call it that was sin issue. And I'm like, hey man, that's terrible. I told him, I'm like, you should repent. I mean, that really, it's bad. And he was crying, he's like, he looked at me, he such a regent eye, and he told me, I wrote it down in my journal, I just quoted it from my journal back, you know, and I said, Jen, I know that I should repent. That's why I feel this remorse and depressed. 
Another condemnation is the last thing I need to hear, since that's all I feel. I was the miserable comforter that Job had. I didn't know how to comfort my friend, only condemned him. Sure, he should repent, and he was already repenting. That's really sobbing and remorseful. But I was just quick to blame, and that's terrible. You should be depressed about that. Oftentimes, unfortunately, that's church culture. <laughs> we don't want that. That bridge is so much legalism cornerstone that you're not free to talk about how much life is hard sometimes. Let's talk about its effect, having settled down. What, how does it things happen? Look at Proverbs 15, 13 and 17, 22. What does it say? A glad heart makes cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. 17, 22. Joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bone. When he says that he dries up the bone, that's such a vivid metaphor. It's like a slow death. It saps the life out of you slowly and surely. Death by thousand paper cut. It's continual day and night, nonstop, residual pain that over time becomes so taxing and overbearing of your life. Dr. K. Richfield is an expert in manic depression and illness. She's a unique figure in this field because she's not only an expert in this field, but she also a personal first and went through that so many times. And this is how she describes about what she went through in her book. It says, profound melancholia is a day in, day out, night in, night out, almost arterial level of agony. It's a pitiless, unrelenting pain. It's a pitiless, unrelenting pain that affords no window of hope, no alternative to a grim and brackish existence and no respite from the cold undercurrents of thought and feeling that dominate the horribly restless night of despair. Proverbs says it, crush the spirit who can bear, it dries up the bones. If you have gone through the deep heartache, you're like, I understand that. I just cannot seem to shake that off. One of the beloved American poet, Emily Dickinson, you know, probably one of the most well-known poems, Hope, I see how hopeful this poem is, right? He says, she says, you know, her first stanza goes like this. Hope is the thing that with the feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. To share that hope is the thing with the feather that perches in the soul, that sings the tune, sings the melody. Guess what? When you're going through melancholia, there's no song in your heart. There's no bird that perched in your soul. I don't know whether you have walked through this kind of darkness. I would say the last seven, eight years, I call this personally, I call that great deep funk I went through. I went through it twice in the last seven years that I did not shake it off. Full disclosure, one time I went through that because of the loss of my dog. I loved my dog. I mean, he carried me for all my, I mean, I love that little thing. Uh, when he died, I mean, I remember being so scared of coming home. I'm like, there's no one to welcome me home. I am legit scared. I remember crying like, I've never lost it in my life. I just completely lost it that time. Um, <laughs> and I think I, I cried at least once a week for like a whole month and a half. And it, like every month, like now it's crying over that at least once a month over it. Um, and just another time, went through a very dark time over some issues of romantic love. That was very hard of my life. 
one point um, through all that. Some of you, maybe it's caused by your family conflict, caused by your rejection at work or directionless of your life. What you need in that is first of all, solution, brief solution before we dive in Psalm 88. You need a deep friends who can carry you through that. Um, really, you need a friends who can share your intimacy, your deep part of your soul, who can talk to you, get you out of it. Because theoretically, you know what to do, but you just are not able. What got me out of at one point, and I was just so, I just went cuckoo, <laughs> if I can call it that. But I was so irrational when I was going through darkness. My poor dad, listen, he listened to my nonsense four hours a day. I was repeating the same thing over and over and over. I just had to keep bombing it out while it was within me. And he was so patient with me. And he was like very concerned about that. I thought, oh, in two weeks, I'm going to struggle with it, and then I'll get over it. No, it lasted at least three months. I was panicking. I just, it was all I could have think about. It consumed me to the degree that I couldn't think of anything else. I was just pace every day, thinking about that, what to do, what not to do, how to get over that. It's so hard. Church, do you have that kind of friends who can share the agony with you? Otherwise, you will not get through that. Um, and I want to especially highlight church community. Yes, you have your best friend. In 2021, January, Atlantic published this article that the pandemic has erased the entire category of friendship. What this article dealt with, that the reason why our nation is everyone's imploding, exploding, is that extra pandemic made closer ties of your immediate family circle. Your first tier of friendship is strengthened. It. The pandemic virtually evaporated entire second tier friendship. Your coworkers, your church community, you're kind of, not your best friend, but another friend that you really knew well, completely evaporated. As a result, people are so isolated, all they know is them and their spouse. They may be better, but they don't know anybody else. You're so isolated. The article says, it resonated with so many people, including my heart, it says, pandemic has evaporated entire categories of friendship. And by doing so, it depleted the joys that make up a human life and buoy human health. During the past year, it's often felt like the pandemic has come for all but the closest of my close ties. Most Americans were especially ill-prepared for the sudden loss of their weak ties. The importance of friendship overall, especially friendships of moderate strength, is generally downplayed in the country's culture, while family and romantic partners are supposed to be the be-all and end-all. Uh, your spouse cannot take all your craziness. And this retreat, make some friends. Or if you knew it, moderate strength friends, strengthen their friends and build that. When you go after retreat, take them out for coffee, invite them over home, talk to them. The more friends you have who can walk through your life, you will be better off. Lastly, look at the Proverbs 18.14. Man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear. It shows that emotional and spiritual, this heart, mental health, whatever you're calling, is even more important than your physical health, right? When you're sick, you're like, I'll get over it in a few days. But when you are going through the broken heart rejection, man, it's devastating when you're aching for your child, for your people that you love, whatever the reason is. 
I hope you kind of got the glimpse overview, brief overview. By no means this sermon will be able to equip you for everything that you must deal with, but I only want to raise awareness into a church. Uh, it's such a non-binary thing that we all sometimes go through it. And it's cause can be sin issue, can be opposite of sin issue, because you're running for the Lord. It can be circumstantial, physical, because of your hopelessness, so many things. Having said all that, Let's do a case study of a man who was depressed. Actually, scripture has a scripture for that. Open up your Bible to Psalm 88 today. Uh, as you open up, Psalm 88 is a one of the very unique psalms in the entire Psalter. Probably there, as far as I'm aware, there are only two psalms that are like Psalm 88, Psalm 39 and Psalm 88. Um, uh, if you look at Book of Psalms, my favorite books of the Bible because it's such a great discipline. Oftentimes in the psalm, psalmist often begins by saying, God is good, life is great. And then says, actually, life is pretty terrible. There are people who are trying to kill me. I don't know what to do. God, uh, the enemies are around me, surround me. And in the end, psalmist says, but my hope comes from the Lord. I shall find joy in the Lord. I am okay. And that's kind of cycle of the psalm. goes up, down, and up. comes up like that. But those two psalms that we are about to study, we are going to study 88, but 39 and 88 are two psalms that are, oh, it ends in darkness. Now look at how Psalm 88 ends. You have crushed, verse 18, you have crushed, caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have, have become darkness. Some other translation says that my only friend is darkness. That's awkward. That's how the psalm ends. Do you know what Psalm 39 ends? Psalm 39 ends by saying, God, please go away from me. Go away. At least if you go away, I'll die in peace. Turn away from me. So at least let me live my life. How do you reckon that? In a sense, it's theologically incorrect. Right? Though darkness not only is a friend, but somehow God permits that in the Psalter. There's reason for it. I mean, see how Psalm 88, see how depressed is. I'm not going to read it in its entirety for the sake of time, but like verse 1. Uh, second half, I cry out day and night before you. Verse 3, for my soul is full of troubles. 88, verse 6, you have put me in the depth of the pit, in the reasons of dark and deep. Verse 9, my eye grow dim through sorrow. 88, 13, well, I, O oh Lord, cry to you. Verse 15, I am afflicted and in pain. From my youth, I have been close to death. I suffer your terrors. I am desperate. Verse 18, my companions have become my darkness. How do you make sense of that? This psalm does not end, but I hope God, my great joy come from him. No, it ends in like darkness is my only friend. How do you reckon with that? First of all, church, I want you to be aware that even your despair, even your crushed spirit, even your depression can be used by God. In the end, this psalm was the most comforting psalm. The fact that God permits that, he has a reason for it. He understands that there are seasons of life that you walk through such great funk. Who wrote this psalm is the guy named Haman, not the H-A-M-A-N, Haman, written in Book of Esther, um, but he, Haman was the H-E-M-A-N, was a very wise man, but his wisdom 
Well, it's actually even compared to King Solomon in 431. First um, King 431 says that he, Solomon, was wiser than anyone else, even wiser than Haman. The fact that he was compared with Solomon as such a wise king, that this guy was such a wise man as well. And who was this Haman? He was a worship leader. Actually, he was a worship leader at a church. In 1 Chronicles 6.33, it states that he was the musician in the tabernacle of God. It says, these are the men who served and their sons. Of the sons of the Kohahites, Haman was the singer, the son of Joel, son of Samuel. He was a songwriter and a worship leader and a poet for the purpose of worship. In fact, when you look at, I think it's around the Psalm, I forgot, it's 80s or 90s, a lot of songs are written by Haman as well as one of the Levites and just a musician guild to usher congregation to musical worship. Um, that David, out of all, appoints Haman as worship leader. In 1 Chronicles 15, 16, 17 says, David also commanded the chief of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. So the Levites appointed Haman, the son of Joel. But this guy, they appointed this Haman for joy. The one who knew what was joy was all about, joyful worship leader, was also a depressed man. Can you imagine? This actually made so much sense to me. When you look at great artists, oftentimes they are quite a lot of times quite depressed as well. Um, Haman was an artist, but his song of sadness has become the greatest healing balm of my soul. The fact that God permits that, Haman did not write his song of depression so that, oh, maybe thousand years later, Jin will be comforted by this, my depressed note when he's walking through dark times. No, he didn't know that he was just very raw before the Lord. God, life is hard, and I just want to be vulnerable before you. So know that even your darkness and depression and suffering can be used by God. Second thing that we can learn from the scripture is that sometimes your darkness can last much, much longer than you would like to. I said to myself, two weeks, I'm going to struggle with it, I'm going to be over it. When it lasts a month, I just didn't know how to reckon with myself. The heart had killed me. Like verse 1 and 3, I thought to say, day and night, he was crying out. He's overwhelmed. Verse 6, he's in the darkest of death rock bottom. You know what's sad about it? Verse 15, this guy's nearing the end of his life. And verse 15 says, from his youth, he has been suffering. Sometimes there's no, it can last much, much, much dark tone of your life than you would like. And he ends it. My only companion is darkness. My only friend is darkness. How do you reckon with that? Because no, Spirit of God is with him. But he's making a statement that is not true, but God permits that. That becomes such a comfort. And this is their one commentator called Derek Kidner says about this verse. Uh, in Hebrew Bible, that darkness is the final word of this psalm. It's a psalm as well. What a darkness. He says, with darkness as its final word. What is the role of this psalm in scripture? For the beginning of an answer, we may know it first. It's witness to the possibility of unrelieved suffering as a believer's earthly lot. The happy ending of most psalms of this kind is seen to be a bonus 
not of you. Its withholding is not a proof of either God's displeasure or his defeat. This author, like Job, does not give up. He completes his prayer still in the dark and totally unrewarded. His existence was no mistake. There was a divine plan bigger than he knew and a place in it reserved most carefully for him. Church, when you are walking through deep darkness, know that our God is with you. Your darkness and despair can also be used by God. I remember Elizabeth Elliot once said, it is not the top of mountain where all the trees and plants grow, but it is deep down in a valley where all the trees and plants grow. God allows the darkness and suffering to shape you and mold you in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Take heart, church. Your darkness may tarry for the night, but one day joy comes in the morning. That joy may be tomorrow. That joy may come 10 years later. That joy might not come until you see Jesus face to face. And the ultimate joy comes. Every ounce of suffering and darkness you felt in your life will be worth it. So do you realize that how God allowed this song, like Job, Job was having a hard time. I mean, this psalmist completes his prayer still in the presence of God. God, darkness, my only prayer, he's talking to God. Don't run away from God in your darkness. Come to God just as you are. Church, where are you today? May I give you the ultimate hope today, how you can take hope in your darkness? Look to the Jesus of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where you can find ultimate hope in your darkness. What do I mean by that? Here in the psalmist, he actually is not true. Darkness was not his only friend. Our God was still with him. Why? One pastor said this. Sometimes you say in darkness, where are you, God? I'm going through a terrible time. But the sense of God's absence is the very sign of his presence. What do you mean by it? If God is really absent in your darkness, you will not even seek after him. You're being different. You don't even care. The fact that you're crying, God, where are you? Don't you know my agony? God was still with Samas here. Darkness is my only friend. He doesn't know that God is still carrying him through all thickness, all depths of agony. So our hope is actually in the end. To this Samas, he felt like darkness was his only friend, but that's not true. But guess what? At the cross of Jesus Christ, darkness truly was his only friend. Six to ninth hours, darkness fell upon the earth. All his friends, best friends, disciples shone away from him. Even the Father forsook him at that moment. As cosmic sin was laid upon him, as Jesus descends to hell for our sin. That darkness was truly his only friend. He was willing to take upon the cosmic darkness on himself. So that when you feel the darkness is all you feel in your life, you may feel like darkness is only friend. But if you know Jesus Christ is your, is your life, is your hope of your life, if you know him as your savior, then darkness might feel like your only friend, but he is there carrying you through each step of the way. He absorbed cosmic darkness so that one day you experience eternal light that comes, the joy that comes in the morning. 
cornerstone in your darkness, despair, and crushed spirit? Will you hold on? Will you look to Jesus Christ who cried out, It is finished. I have actual cosmic darkness so that you can hold on to this hope of life that is going to come in the morning. Look to him for your hope in life and death in your darkness. Let me pray for us.